The idea of a pioneer is familiar to any student of American history. We've had many pioneers in science, in geography, in, in government. Probably one of the greatest pioneers, or, or two of the greatest pioneers, were Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. They opened up the way from coast to coast as they searched for the Northwest Passage. Lewis and Clark headed west with a small band of men and a few supplies, but their resources of skill and courage and determination saw them through to success. Probably the greatest achievement of their expedition was crossing the Rocky Mountains, a terrifying and treacherous barrier that none of their fellow countrymen had ever ever dared to face. Well, our text today deals with the idea that Jesus is the greatest pioneer, our pioneer. Like those settlers who followed Lewis and Clark into the West, we follow a path that was blazed by Jesus Christ alone, who has given us salvation who has given us the promised land and the gift of eternal life. He's gone where we could not go by his own resources of righteousness and truth and all-conquering life and power. He's opened up the way to heaven for us. We are in this sermon series in the book of Hebrews that we've called Pressing On Because of the Supremacy of Christ. And the author is writing to Jewish Christians who are experiencing growing pressures, growing persecution and resistance for their faith, and they are being tempted to compromise, to go back to the shadows of the Old Testament ceremonies, and to give up on their belief that Jesus is God and the resurrected Messiah. And so far, the author spent the first chapter laying the groundwork for the entire book, He showed us that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, who is God, the creator, who took on human flesh, who came to reveal to us the Father. And then he is the ultimate priest, who came to purify us from our sins through his sacrifice. And then he's the ultimate king, who has ascended back to heaven and is enthroned there, superior to the angels, because he is the Son of God. And then the beginning of chapter 2, he warns the people not to drift away from their belief in Christ. He reminds them of the judgment of God that is coming. But God's judgment has been satisfied through the cross for those who believe. And last week, the author returned to the subject of Jesus being superior to the angels. And he stated how Jesus reigns in heaven over all creatures, over all things. And he is guaranteed to the redeemed to be restored to their original purpose. Today our text is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. So follow along with me as I read the word of God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Thus far, the reading of God's word. We're going to see from our text how the sending of Christ to suffer and to die and to rise again from the dead to bring God's people into his family and into heaven is consistent with nature. Jesus came to be our pioneer and our founder, but he could not do this without first being perfected in his humanity through suffering. And his suffering and glory blaze the trail for our own suffering in order to be sanctified. Because he did all of this, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Well, some people have a reaction when they hear the true gospel. When they hear that God sent his son in order to suffer and to be crucified to provide us with salvation, they think this is unbecoming of God. They react that this is barbaric. This is some kind of cosmic child abuse. But God would never subject his son to that kind of horrible death. And yet, the author objects to that kind of reasoning in verse 10. He says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so the first point that we see from our text is it was fitting for God to bring many sons to glory. The author states, it was fitting that he, who is the he? Well, the he is for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, God, God the Father. And what does he mean by fitting? He means it's worthy of him. It's perfectly appropriate. It's in line with God's nature and who he is and his purposes. And what was fitting of him? Well, first, it was fitting of God the Father to bring many sons to glory. It was fitting for God the Father to be gracious, to be merciful in order to save his people. He's talking about those that Jesus died for. Why are they called sons? Well, we have to understand that in the ancient Middle East, the sons received the inheritance of their fathers. And so sons in this context is to be understood as inclusive of both men and women, boys and girls who are believers. All believers are given the spiritual inheritance of sons. And what is this inheritance? Well, the author states, it is glory. He's talking about what mankind lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. We lost the glory of perfectly reflecting the image of God. We lost the glory of unhindered fellowship with God. We lost the glory of living in paradise with God and having dominion over the earth. But Jesus came to restore that glory of being God's children once again. You'll notice the word many, many sons to glory. In other words, there's a vast multitude 
of His children throughout history. It may seem that in these days it's a small number compared to the rest of society, but it's an incredibly great number throughout time. Remember God told Abraham that his offspring would be as vast as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. But the author goes on to describe what was also fitting for God to do. He relates point number two, it was fitting for God to make our founder perfect through suffering. Now here he speaks specifically as to how he brought many sons to glory. He sent his son to be the founder of their salvation. And for him to be the founder of our salvation, he had to be made perfect through suffering. Now let's first deal with that word, founder. It's the word archegos, which also means pioneer or author. The idea here is that Jesus was a pathfinder. He went before us and blazed the trail. The same word is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when the author exhorts believers to run the race set out before them, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. How was Jesus the founder of our faith? How was he the founder of our salvation? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is God, came to this world and took on a human body and a human nature without sin, and yet remaining God. And he came to live the life that we were supposed to live, to fulfill all the commandments perfectly, to live perfectly, righteously, in all circumstances of life. And he also had to come to be our substitute on the cross. He had to be delivered up to the cross to receive our record of sin and to receive the judgment that we deserved. He had to suffer and die to receive the curse that we deserved on our behalf. And then he overcame death and sin and the devil by being resurrected from the dead. And he ascended to heaven, returning to where he came from, only now with two natures, God and man. Jesus was our pioneer. He did what we could not do for ourselves to earn us salvation. We went where we, or he went where he could not, we could not go. But by his own resources, through his own power, his own righteousness, he has opened up a way for us, a relationship with God, heaven forever. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But what does it mean that the Father made him the founder perfect through suffering? Wasn't Jesus perfect when he came to this earth? Yes, he was. This word perfect is used nine times in Hebrews. Teleio in the Greek. It can sometimes be interpreted as consecrated. Our founder Our pioneer of salvation had to become like us as a human being and to live under the commandments perfectly, being righteous in all circumstances, choosing God's will in every circumstance, in every temptation, all the while clothed with the weakness of human flesh and living in a fallen world. Jesus had to suffer throughout his lifetime 
in all different kinds of circumstances when he was tempted. And in each case, he chose God's will. He chose righteousness and obedience to God's commandments out of pure love for him. He earned our righteousness. Later, the author would say in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus came as our high priest. And as high priests in the Old Testament had to consecrate themselves before they made an offering, Jesus consecrated himself. But he wasn't a sinner. He just was made more perfect in his obedience to the Lord. Jesus is our high priest. He consecrated himself not to bring an offering of some lamb, but to bring himself as the perfect consecrated lamb. And so the idea of perfecting brings with it the idea of growing in his humanity humanity to be the perfect substitute sacrifice for our sins. Jesus also, as our high priest, had to sympathize with us. He went through all the stages of life, experiencing what we experience, and yet without sin in order to identify with us. And so he matured. Jesus matured. He grew, but not from imperfect to perfect, but from strength to strength as a human being. You know, there aren't really any good illustrations for this. One that I think is pretty inadequate, but I thought it was worth sharing. This time of year, we are enjoying collegiate football, and we have several undefeated teams right now, and maybe one of them will go undefeated throughout the whole season, and they will get better and better as the year goes on. They will become more and more perfect. But that analogy, of course, breaks down in so many points because they aren't perfect like Jesus was perfect. In verse 11, the writer wants to show the link between Jesus and those that he saved. And we're introduced to this word sanctify. Sanctify means being set apart by God, being made holy by God. You know, we forget sometimes that God saves us, not just so that we could be declared acceptable and righteous before him, not so that we can be forgiven of all of our sins, Not just so we can be reconciled to have fellowship with God and to have the guarantee of eternal life in heaven. No, He saves us also that we might be restored to our original state before the fall. In other words, to be holy. To perfectly reflect God's righteousness and holiness in our humanity. The author of Hebrews states in verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And so the third point that God wants us to see from our text is that believers have one source of sanctification. See what's interesting here that we see in this passage and other places in Scripture is that believers are both sanctified and are being sanctified on this earth. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, the author states, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you see, we're perfected, 
we're sanctified, but we're also being sanctified in this life. You see, when we become Christians, we are declared righteous because we have credited to our account the righteous record of Christ, the holiness of Christ, and that we could call positional sanctification. But it doesn't mean that automatically now we are holy in our thoughts, words, and actions. No, when we become Christians, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're given a new nature, we are delivered from the power of sin and the devil, but the old man and the world and the devil are fighting against us. And so the rest of our lives here on earth involves cooperating with the Holy Spirit and working towards sanctification that we call progressive sanctification. We are progressing to become more and more of who we are called to be. We're striving with God's help to choose righteousness and say no to sin. We read in our scripture reading from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, Jesus prayed for our sanctification. And he prayed that we are sanctified by the truth, by God's word. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, or 3 rather, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And Paul also states in Philippians 2, 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not working for your salvation, but working it out, working out the sanctification we have in Christ, working out the new nature we have in Christ, working out the fact that we are his children so that we might become more and more like Christ. You see, that is what the Christian life is about. It's growing in our sanctification, in holiness. And this involves putting off the old man, leaving sin behind, and putting on the new man. That's our destiny. That's our calling. Life for the believer is not about climbing the corporate ladder. It's not about amassing money or toys. It's not about accumulating fun experiences. It's about growing in holiness. And that's why God takes us through trials and suffering because we tend to rely on him more when we go through those times and we become purified, more holy. All of us here, I think, want to know what is God's will for my life? Well, here it is. We are to be holy, to be sanctified. But the writer wants us to know the source of our sanctification. It is God the Trinity, and specifically Jesus who was made perfect for us. One of my favorite passages is is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. It says, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is our sanctification. In Him are all the resources that we need to grow in holiness. Yes, He conquered sin on the cross when He died and rose from the dead, but He also defeated sin every day in His life as He suffered temptations, as He endured. He lived the righteous life, not only so that we could be declared righteous, but so that we could have the resources to live a holy life. Remember, 
Again, back to our scripture reading in John 17, 19. After Jesus prayed for our sanctification, he said this, And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's the source of our sanctification. Again, hearkening back to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where we're told that we're to run the race with endurance, we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us, looking to Jesus, the founder, there's that word, and perfecter or sanctifier of our faith. Well, in this last section that we're going to look at, uh, the second half of verse 11 through verse 13, the author wants to encourage believers in this sanctification that, point four, Jesus is not ashamed to call his people brothers. We already saw in verse 10 that we're called sons. We're on our way to glory. But here the writer says that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know, a lot is taught about the fatherhood of God, how he is the believer's father, and that's an important doctrine of the Bible. But here the author is emphasizing the importance of Jesus being our elder brother. Now some of us have, held, have had elder brothers, and maybe your experience was a good one. Uh, maybe it was not such a good one. Maybe a mixture of the two. But I'm here to tell you that I was an awful elder brother. The oldest of four. No, really. I do not deserve to be loved or affirmed or appreciated by my siblings for how I treated them when I was a younger teenager, before I became a believer at the age of 15. I didn't want to have anything to do with my siblings. I was embarrassed of them when I was around my friends. I, they weren't cool. And so I did everything, you know, for myself. I was selfish, and I didn't treat them well. But when God saved me by His grace, I began to improve. But Jesus here is the perfect elder brother. He's not ashamed of us. In fact, he humbled himself by taking on human flesh and a human nature. He got down on our level, walked in our shoes. He took on the shame of our sin at the cross in order to reconcile us to himself. He came to make us his siblings by becoming one of us and living for us, and dying for us, and rising from the dead for us. The Father sent him so that we could be adopted into his family. Jesus came while we were yet sinners to save us so that he could share his inheritance with us. How many of you have known older brothers or sisters who didn't want to share with their younger siblings? This is the opposite of Jesus. He came desiring to share his glory and his inheritance. And to underline this point and to prove the spiritual brotherhood that we have with Jesus, the author wants to show us this was spoken about in the Old Testament. He takes us to Psalm 22, which is a well-known messianic psalm. We read portions of it during our call to worship. And it depicts the suffering of Jesus Christ before uh, he died on the cross and then afterwards his glorification. 
In fact, Jesus quotes from it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now the exalted Christ, after he has been resurrected and ascended, he says in verse 22 of Psalm 22, and quoted in verse 12 of our text, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So after he is resurrected and ascended to heaven, he's saying, I will tell of my father's name to my brothers, calling the church his brethren. In the midst of the congregation, the church, and he will sing his praise. Well, all of this is fascinating to me, how God, through Christ, speaks to us in the congregation through his word, but it's fascinating to me that Jesus is depicted here as a worship leader. John Calvin said that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of our hymns. He's leading us in worship. The other two quotes are from Isaiah 8, verse 17 and 18. The first part of our text in verse 13 says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Now this was Isaiah saying this. In the context, he was told to go preach to his people and they would reject his message. It was an evil generation that would not turn to the Lord. Nonetheless, God was going to make him faithful even when everyone else rejected him. And Jesus here is the ultimate Isaiah, the ultimate prophet. He was faithful. He fulfilled these words. I will put my trust in him. Jesus put his trust in the Father throughout his life, even up to the very end when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is teaching us here the reason that we are Christ's brethren is that he was faithful for us, being our substitute. He lived faithfully, giving us his righteousness, providing us with forgiveness of sins. He was faithful to provide us with salvation and sanctification. But God also promised Isaiah that he would have sons who would follow in his faith. And in Isaiah 8:18, 8, he said, "Behold, I and the children God has given me." This is Isaiah saying, "I am thankful, Lord, you've given me children who will obey you." We'll see Here, the author is putting these words into the mouth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is telling us that, like Isaiah, Jesus is thankful for his children and proud of his children. I visualize a family picture. My brother, he's not the oldest, but he towers over everybody. And usually when he's in the picture, he's in the center of the picture and putting his big arms around the family. And I see Jesus doing that putting his arms around the children that God has given him and rejoicing, rejoicing that they are his children. Isaiah 53.10 says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. This reminds us of Zephaniah 3.17 when it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You remember that phrase? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. What was the joy that Jesus looked forward to? Gathering his children. 
He died, he lived and died for his children. Such is the solidarity that Jesus has with us. He rejoices that the Father has given us to him. And of course, this harkens back to John chapter 17, when Jesus says, yours they were, and you gave them to me. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And so what? How should these truths make an impact on the way that we think and live our lives? Well, let me give you three application points, three takeaways from the the truths in this text. The first one is, have you looked to Jesus in faith as the founder of your salvation? Do you know you need a founder? You need an author of your salvation because you cannot author your own salvation. That's the message of the Bible. We are born separated from God. We're under his condemnation and wrath apart from the grace of Christ. God demands perfect holiness according to his commandments. He also demands perfect justice against sin. All sin must be punished in hell. You cannot be perfectly righteous. You cannot pay for your sin debt. God must judge your sin in hell forever. You can't save yourself. You can't do good works. You can't do penance that would earn salvation. That's why Jesus came to live and die in your place, to earn your righteousness for you and to take on your sin debt on the cross to make a payment, the payment on your behalf through his suffering and bleeding and dying. And then he rose from the third day to prove that he was in fact God the Son and the Messiah and that he did accomplish your salvation. He was the author of your salvation and that he had victory over sin and death and the devil for you. God must change a person's heart. And when that person's heart is changed, they turn from their rebellion and sin and pride and they rely on Jesus and his work alone for their salvation. I ask you, have you done that? Has God by his grace caused that to happen in your life? Have you surrendered to Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you think if someone could be saved any other way that the Father would have sent his Son to go through all of that for us? There aren't any other ways to God. There's only one way The most exalted being in the universe had to suffer to save us. So if you haven't turned from your sins and believed in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, do so today. Don't delay. And then you will be declared righteous before God. You'll be forgiven of all your sins. You'll be adopted into God's family, united in fellowship with God, and you will have the certainty of destiny in glory with him. But secondly, if you're a believer, I ask you, do you see your primary purpose as set apart to be holy? If you've been born again, you've received a new nature to grow to be holy like Christ. You are positionally sanctified, but now you must be who you are and pursue progressive sanctification. You must become in thought, word, and deed what you are declared to be. 
we're declared to be righteous. We must align our lives, our practices, our thoughts with who we are declared to be. His path that Jesus took was a path of being perfected by suffering, and that is our path as well. There's a connection between Jesus' suffering and His glory, and there's a connection between our suffering and our glory. And see, that ought to change our attitude about suffering in this life. All our sufferings as believers have a purpose. God doesn't waste any of them. They are eternally meaningful. And that's what James meant when he said in James 1-2, count it all joy when meeting trials of various kinds. But the good news is we never go through these trials alone. Christ has preceded this trail for us. And this is why Paul talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. He suffers with us. He's with us to provide what we need. Here's another imperfect analogy. Jesus is like the lead rock climber. I don't know if any of you are rock climbers here, but if you are a lead rock climber, you go first, and you have a harness, and you're connected to a rope, and you work at climbing, and you find the the most secure footings, and you pound pitons or bolts into the rock and secure the rope by clips, and other climbers use your rope and climb after you, securing themselves to those clips that the lead climber secured. Jesus climbed the impossible rock of salvation by suffering for us, by atoning for our sins, by being resurrected for our salvation. We were united in him when he climbed that rock of salvation. When he arrived at the top, he did it for us. He secured our salvation. But that trail that he blazed of suffering, we also must follow, not in order to save ourselves, but because we must follow his path of suffering to be perfected, to be sanctified. But along the way, we have him. We have his rope. We have the anchors. We're connected to him, his presence, his life that enables us along the way. Jesus identifies with us in our suffering. Finally, do you base your identity on the solidarity that Jesus has with you as your elder brother? If you're a believer, you ought to think of yourself as brothers and sisters, not just in the family of God, but Jesus is your perfect elder brother. And so your attitudes, your aspirations, your motives should all be derived, not from the world, but from this communion that you have with your elder brother and with God. He took up your nature so that you might share in his nature and inheritance. His nature is in you. He is the source of strength and help and sanctification. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He loves you with a sacrificial love. He is the opposite of being ashamed of you. He is proud to be your elder brother. He has joy in being your elder brother and companionship with the household of God. You're clothed with his righteousness. He's been faithful to the Father for you. He brought you into his family, into the church, to grow and to worship together. 
And he continues to proclaim the glory of the Father to you through his word. And he's in the midst of us, in the congregation, leading us in joyful worship and service. Glory awaits you. His inheritance awaits you. So keep your eyes on him. Depend upon him. He looks at you with delight. He's the perfecter. He's the founder of your faith. Keep seeking him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you are our elder brother. And you love us with an everlasting love. And you showed that love to us by coming to this world to live for us, to die for us, and to rise from the dead for us, and to ascend to heaven for us. Lord, thank you for being with us. Thank you for providing everything that we need for our sanctification. Give us a renewed desire, Lord, to be holy and to follow in your footsteps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.